Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Andy, it is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. I love The Next Reel Season 4. Do you know why? I don't. Why? Because we got to talk about my favorite movie, Terry Gilliam's Brazil. That's not even an adaptation. Uh, no, but it was such a great part of our, of our great Terry Gilliam series. And a few others in that series were adaptations, like The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, adapted from Raspi's stories, and La Jete, which inspired 12 Monkeys. Oh, right. And, and for our Man With No Name trilogy, we saw how Sergio Leone's A Fistful of Dollars was basically stolen from Kurosawa's Yojimbo. We added Labor Day to our Jason Reitman series, adapted from Joyce Maynard's novel. Oof, there's one we'll always regret. Our big Stephen King series covered adaptations like The Shining, Cujo, Christine, and Stand By Me, great horror and coming-of-age tales. Another Coen Brothers adaptation, too. We got to talk about how they turned Homer's The Odyssey into Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? For our holiday series, we did The Bishop's Wife and The Poseidon Adventure. And who could forget seeing Alec Guinness in the adaptation of Kind Hearts and Coronets during our series dedicated to him. We really need to do more of his films. Truly. We had our first film noir series with classics like Double Indemnity, Detour, and Out of the Past. And our black and white cinematography of James Wong Howe series with The Thin Man, Sweet Smell of Success, Seconds, and King's Row. So many adaptations. Oh, you're not kidding. Dive deeper into these originals and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book you buy helps support our show. Get the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and start reading today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. 
It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. I mean, do you think there's going to be anything different about the show? It's going to sound better. <laughs> Something. Don't you think it'll it'll be crisper? Well, I'm sure it'll be crisper. I know that it didn't take us as long to get started. <laughs> I know yeah. that the runway that we need to give the show is dramatically <laughs> shorter now. Yes. So I'll leave it yes. at that. How, you know, I wanted to, I have some follow-up. First of all, I mentioned last week that I had seen a movie, but I couldn't remember what it was. And I took that as a sign uh, that it probably wasn't very good. Well, I remembered what it was. It mm. was The Maze Runner. Oh, okay. I took my daughter to see The Maze Runner. She's a big fan. She's read all the uh, all the books. And uh, so I saw The Maze Runner. And I give it a solid meh plus. Wow. Uh, it, is, it is better than uh, Divergent. It is not as good by a long shot as uh, Hunger Games. Certainly Hunger Games Part 2. Um but it was, uh, you know, I had a, I had a meh good time. There was, a right. of, there was some running. There was some, uh, some nice, uh, you know, giant uh, maze and some intrigue. And uh, there were some, uh, definitely some special effects. That now, they, had uh, you read, had you read the book too? No, no, not at all. That was not one that I'd read. But the, then we talked about Gone Girl and I have now seen that. Ah, very good. Yeah. And you had read that one. I had read that one. And I don't know what the deal was, but I had a tough time with the movie um, being uh, entertained by it. Hmm. I I struggled with it. I found myself, uh, I, I found it really, I, I, I probably need to see it again. I guarantee that the the my impression of the story, right, of just the 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 actual... Um, sort of evilness of their marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I guarantee I'm sort of oversaturated on that story. Like reading the book was was enough, and I don't remember ever feeling this way before. Like where reading the book was emotionally exhausted me enough that I just didn't. I, I feel like I didn't. Even, I wanted to see the movie because it's a it's a David Fincher film, and and um, you know that's important. But my goodness, I I found myself just tuning out. Um, I, I thought it was it was long and it was it was a slog uh, to get through. I, I think you know it's like uh, Sixth Sense in a way. You know, once you know, then you know. And um, I I just I had a really hard time connecting with it. I loved the soundtrack. I absolutely loved the uh, uh, Resner Finch soundtrack. Uh, it's it's absolutely up there with uh, Dragon Tattoo for me, which I listen to regularly. Um, and and always love uh, Fincher, yet I just couldn't connect with this film. Interesting. Yeah, right? I was really surprised. And I felt really sort of guilty the whole time. I was just feeling just shame. 
I should like this more. <laughs> I should like this more. Check my phone. What time is it? Like the, I really need to, but to focus, Pete. Focus. You gotta like this movie. It's a venture. You gotta like this movie. He's transcendent. Make him transcendent in your head. He's not transcendent. You're bored. That's what was going on. Wow. I know. Interesting. Yeah. It's, I didn't know the story, so I didn't have that experience because I it was completely fresh for me, which was nice. She was she was great. Oh yeah. Uh, how did they, how did they make her, uh, gain weight? She gained weight. She did it really well. <laughs> she did. You know what I mean? Like that just, that she was, she, it, it looked great. Although I just found myself, I kept thinking, wow, she, she gained a lot of weight in like five days. <laughs> just the, the, it works better in the book. I think the whole schedule, the five days gone, two weeks gone, that whole thing works better in the book for me. I, I think generally, but I will say, and I think this was to your wife's point too. Uh, this was a generally very strong adaptation of the original text. Yeah. I, there was there was very little in here that I I found was just not I, there was there was one I think uh, kind of bench strength character that was completely written out of the film but um, in general this was it, it was really well well done so that's yeah. that's okay. that's gone girl I know we're probably going to do a show on it just again because we did the Fincher series but right right um, I wanted to follow up with you on that well I'm glad you did. Are you? I feel like I let you down. You did. I wasn't going to say it, but it's out there now. All right. Dang. Yeah. No speaking told, of speaking of bringing me down. What? What happened? What happened? It was a really kind of a last few days of just tragedy as far as deaths go. Oh, man. Elizabeth Pena died. That was the one. I don't, I don't know anyone else but that. What happened since then? Well... Uh, is that just, it? Just today, uh, Misty Upham was found dead. She was uh, <sighs> the girl in August Osage County and Frozen River and Django Unchained. What? So she was How just did she dead. die? Uh, they found her body near a wooded area uh, near an embankment uh, of the White River. Oh, my goodness. Sure. Up, up in, near Seattle, yeah. That's terrible. She was so young. What was she, 30? 32. Yeah. Oh, man. I know. So not much has uh, been uh, figured out as far as that goes. It just happened uh, six hours ago. Oh, my goodness. That's the worst. I know. When you and know then, there's foul play. And then over the weekend, uh, two stuntmen who have been in the business for years and since retired, but Bob Orison and Gary McLarty, um, they, uh, I can't remember how old they were, but I mean, they had been doing stunts forever, you know, like back in the, the heyday. And then they were doing it all the way into the nineties. Like Bob Orison was uh, doing stunts in the Rambo movies and speed, die hard, Stargate, all those sorts of things. And, uh, Gary McLarty did like the blues brothers, Jurassic park, the Terminator, Beverly Hills cop. Uh, you know, and that's just the more recent stuff. I mean, going back wow. into the 60s and 70s, they were uh, driving in their truck together and they did a U-turn and somebody uh, you know, slammed right into the side of them and killed them both. Oh, goodness. I know. That is just tragic. Yeah. They were, uh, I don't know, they were like, uh, Gary McLarty was 74 and Bob Orison was 86. Wow. Um, yeah, very sad. Wow. 
Well, this so. has been a, a great in memoriam segment. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I know. That's horrible. I think uh, that unless you've got a good joke coming on, <laughs> we need to tell the people where we're from. <laughs> yes, let's get past this and tell them where are we from, Pete. for listening this is the next reel i'm pete wright that there is andy nelson howdy and we spoil movies heartily and with great enthusiasm uh gusto. this gusto yes with vim and vigor uh this week we are continuing our long-running stephen king series we're very excited i'm gonna say we are very excited to be taking on stand by me tonight uh and uh whew, it's about time. Uh, but first, you should get to know us a little bit better. You hang out uh, with us over at thenextreel.com. You can uh, catch up with all of our prior shows, all of the special uh, monthly film board episodes that we do. we got one coming up just this very weekend. Uh, we're taking on uh, Fury, right? That's right. Oh, I'm a excited little, A that. little WWII tank action. The uh, I saw the new trailer. For it. The extended trailer was a Gone Girl, along with like 73 other trailers. It was offensive <laughs> how many trailers got placement in front of Gone Girl, but the trailer looks really, really good. Uh, I'm very excited about uh, about this one, and I hope it it uh, it redeems the Monuments Men just a little bit. Yes, yes, I yeah, hope so. That's what I'm hoping. Yeah. Anyhow, so that's coming up uh, this weekend. You hang out with us at Facebook or at Twitter uh, or even Google+. Plus. Um, but we did mention a couple of weeks ago you should find us on LO. You know what? I take that back for now. Don't don't look for us on LO. I don't ever, <laughs> I don't ever go to LO. LO? What's that? <laughs> Hello, governor. <laughs> uh, and so there you go. And now this is I, this is the big the biggest of the big news. The moment we've all been waiting for. Listener's choice. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's it. See, Vim and Vigor both showed up just now. That's the right. listener's choice event. We we uh, this is we do this a couple times a year, uh, where we uh, we do a drawing of anybody who has who has commented or engaged or shared their stories of film love with us in one of the various channels to reach us, and we pick a name out of a very fancy random number generator generated by the one and only Andy Nelson, and we have done just this. Yes, we have done this. Yes. And how did it shake out? Well, uh, when I click the little uh, magic enter button and (laughs) we see who the winner is and it looks like, there you go, we have a winner. It is Jeremy Wicket, everybody. Jeremy Wicket is the, uh, this uh, round's winner of the listener's choice. Jeremy Wicket. Uh, And we know Jeremy Wicket. Uh, He's from Twitter. He had, uh, he'd uh, commented over on Twitter and, uh, and uh yeah excellent congratulations jeremy wicket we we're going to reach out to you on twitter we're going to find you on twitter and track you down and we're going to connect with you and hopefully you will join us uh, on the show um and we will do your movie your pick whatever film you think we need to be talking about we're going to talk about it we're going to interview you and that's uh very much looking forward to that so absolutely congratulations excellent and now speaking of other things that people do on the internet uh, <laughs> I have no better transition than that. How about the Instagram guess the movie hashtag pony prize challenge? How do we shake out this week? 
it was a fun week. We had some uh, some good images that uh, got people guessing a, a wide variety of uh, different movies from uh, The Seventh Seal and Night of the Hunter uh, to uh, what else were people guessing? Um, uh, to Kill a Mockingbird. And then come image four, we had, it was like almost a dead heat guessing match between uh, Cameron L. Ryan and Soda Pop Rocker, who both guessed, it, it must have been within seconds of each other, that it was ace in the hole. Uh, they both guessed correctly. And Cameron L. Ryan scraped ahead by <laughs> seconds and ended up taking it this week. So congratulations, Cameron L. Ryan. You are entered uh, to win the Pony Prize. That's fantastic. I, I don't, I've never seen Ace in the Hole. What? I know. I, in fact, I can't, I'm not even sure I can place it. Oh, we need to add that. We need to do a series and just build a series around that movie so you can really? watch it. It's a great movie. Why haven't I heard of this film? It's Billy Wilder, great film noir. Kirk Douglas. I see that picture of him. Like, what is that, image six, seven? Mm-hmm. That's Kirk Douglas. It is him. Wow. Yeah, it's fantastic. Okay. Add it to the list. There you go. Is this is a series of classic films that Pete should have seen but didn't? Is that <laughs> That's a series? Great. That's a great series. <laughs> uh, okay. Excellent. Well, congratulations. Uh, once again, Cameron L. Ryan crushing it. Yes, indeed. All right. Hey, let's do trailers. <laughs> I want to go first. Oh, well, that's right. Well played, <laughs> sir. <laughs> uh, so I, you know, I have to say, I get very excited about about ocean faring movies, and I'm not sure why that is, but something like Master and Commander just really, uh, just really excites me. The idea of being at sea in a big boat and kind of you're in the middle of nowhere and you have to kind of just kind of fight the elements and everything. I just, I, I find that thrilling. Um, and like Master and Commander, White Squall, all of those sorts of movies I just, I, I think are great. Uh, the trailer just came out today for Ron Howard's new film written by Charles Levitt uh, called In the Heart of the Sea, which is, I mean, it looks like it's kind of based on an actual event from 1820 where there's a whaling ship out in the ocean and they are actually basically being preyed upon by a sperm whale very moby dick like in kind of the the scenario that happens here and um i, I don't know i just i i mesmerized watching this trailer so, <laughs> just, i just it's just that sperm whale is so mean he has a pretty mean really whale. mean. I think of whales in general as being uh, really just generally fairly docile creatures, but sperm well, whales, it turns out, are not. Yeah, I mean, think of, you know, Castaway. You've got the nice little blue whale who pops up and wakes Tom Hanks up just in time to catch a ride on the ocean liner. I mean, generally, whales are very nice creatures. They're right. not great white sharks. No. <laughs> and even, you know, I mean, Shamu was a nice guy. Right? I I know if you were a seal, your perspective may be skewed a little bit, but (laughs) this was just, I mean, Moby (laughs) Dickish. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was just Uh, not right. It was just not right. He is a nasty little bugger. He attacked a boat. 
It was a yeah. boat. And it, it's very Jaws like, you know how he Jaws when they they get the the uh, the the uh, tanks onto him, yeah, and it starts like. Uh, moving around the boat and the ropes are like ripping pieces off the boat that is amplified when tenfold. it's a sperm whale <laughs> when it's one a sperm whale and two like a boat from 1820 yes. was not designed to sustain that sort of damage so spoiler uh, the boat doesn't do well <laughs> yeah. boat does not fare well in this one this uh so generally you're excited about this film then i'm very excited about it because it, chris hemsworth is in it killian murphy uh you know it's it's uh it's it's one of those films where it's got a lot of interesting faces i don't recognize very many many of them other than those two and then brendan gleason's voice uh or you know I, I don't know if it's just his voice but it sounds like he's the one kind of uh telling the story um, and Ben Wishaw pops up in it as Herman Melville, hmm. which uh, piques my curiosity because uh, I, I'm, I'm curious how all of this ties into the, the actual story of Herman Melville writing Moby Dick. Yeah, right. But uh, yes, it is based on true story. So I, you know, I don't know this story at all, but the trailer fascinates me. I love this idea of being out in the ocean like this, and I desperately want to see it when it opens on March 13th, 2015. Can't wait. Looking forward to it. Uh, my trailer is not about a fish. <laughs> uh, I am doing, I, you know, I'm going for the, uh, I'm going for the sentimental this week. Oh. Uh, I, a little bit. I am a Merry friggin Christmas, uh, is coming out November uh, of 2014, just around the corner. And this is one of, uh, Robin Williams final films, um, stars Joel McHale, Lauren Graham, Clark Duke, Oliver Platt. Wendy McClendon, Covey, Tim Hedeker, and here we go, Candace Bergen, oh, my favorite, and Robin Williams. And it's sort of, um, I, I don't know what it's trying to recapture. It's, it's a broad comedy. It's a broad family holiday comedy. Um, it is a little bit of slapstick, uh, a little bit of grit. Uh, if it's trying to recapture a little bit of what I love so much about uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, not sure if it's going to take the title. Um, it, it tends to skew a touch angry in the trailer. Um, and... Uh, but I still found myself uh, with a hearty chuckle every now and again. Comes from director uh, Tristam Shapiro, who hasn't done a whole lot, uh, but has done uh, quite a bit of community and children's hospital. These are shows that I find enormously funny. Uh, he is he directed uh, 24 episodes of uh, Community, some of my favorite episodes, in fact. So I'm I'm very much uh, looking forward to what uh, Shapiro brings to this film. You know, we'll see. What'd you think? I think it looks hilarious. And you're right. Maybe it is the sentimental factor. But, um, and also it's just the fact that I, I'm always hoping for another great Christmas comedy. That's you it, know? right? Yeah, exactly. And yeah. I mean, Joel, Joel McHale, I think is, you know, he's, he's great. He hasn't ever really found any film that, that has worked for him, has he? I can't I... think of... I don't think so. I mean, nothing that has really, um, th that has just really been a lock, you know? Yeah, no, yeah. But, I mean, Community certainly, I think, is, is you know, he's great in Community. That's yeah. a fantastic show. And I'm hoping that this is his chance to kind of, you know, break out of that mold and maybe start getting some more features. Because, I mean, he it looks funny. The relationship between him and Robin Williams, I think, is very, uh, I think it can work really nicely. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm just hoping that it is, it is exactly what we both want it to be. 
Yeah, I do too. So I, that's what I am. My fingers are firmly crossed uh, that, uh, that this film, uh, Merry Friggin' Christmas, is a good kind of warm way to remember Robin Williams, frankly, and a great way to see Candace Bergen again, who I'm always entertained by. Uh, and hopefully Joel McHale and Lauren Graham, um, you know, find their, their footing. And I, I like uh, Lauren Graham a lot. And I, I think it'd be oh, good yeah, to see her, her and, and, you know, some more stuff. So, Absolutely. um, there you go. She was great in Bad Santa. Another great, yeah, another great movie. Christmas movie. There you go. I mean, uh, that's, yeah. that's it. So, yeah. um, anyhow, excited about that. So excellent. Excellent. Uh, that's my trailer again, November, 2014. I'm not sure what the exact date is. Yeah. I'm not either. So it's coming. Hey Pete. Yeah. Want to go see a dead body? In all our lives, there's a fall from innocence, a time after which we are never the same. It happened in the summer of 1959, a long time ago. Oh, man, where do you hear this? Where do you hear this? What is it, man? You guys want to go see a dead body? When the night has come and the land is dark. We interrupt to bring you an update on the search for the missing 12-year-old Ray Brower. Kid's gone. They're never going to find him. Not where they're looking. And the moon is the only We'll see. You think Mighty Mouse could beat up Superman? Mighty Mouse is a cartoon. Superman is a real guy. No way a cartoon could beat up a real guy. We're going to be famous. We're going to be on every radio and TV show in the country. I still don't think we should go. I can only have one food for the rest of my life. That's easy. Pass. Cherry flavor pass. No question about it. I like to go someplace where nobody knows me. We found him. We got dibs. We better start running, eyeball. They got dibs. There's four of us, eyeball. We just make you move. You're dead. For some, it's the last real taste of innocence. I'm never going to get out of this town now, my Gory. You can do anything you want, man. And the first real taste of life. This is really a good time. The most a blast. But for everyone, it's the time that memories are made of. So darling, darling, stand by me. Oh, stand by me. Oh, stand. Stand by me. Stand by me. Oh, Andy, this movie. Ah. Oh. What a relief. <laughs> 1986, Rob Reiner directed the screenplay by Bruce Evans, Reynold Gideon, uh, based on the novella The Body by Stephen King, which uh, originally published in uh, the anthology Different Seasons, which had a pretty darn good run of uh, adaptations. Three for four. Uh, three for four. Um this I was nervous given how I felt about last week and and uh, just the general datedness of some of the earlier uh, King adaptations that we saw. And this one is like a spring rain. It felt it just was great. It was great. <laughs> Full stop. Seriously, it was great. This connected with me on all the right levels. Uh, this it it reminded me what it meant to be a boy uh, in in a time 
in which it was okay to just disappear. And it yeah. was still very much okay to just disappear when I was a boy. I mean, these guys, uh, this, this took place in the late 50s, uh, but, uh, I mean, here we were growing up in the 70s and 80s, and it was still just okay to disappear into the woods and hang out and go find a body. Like, those kinds of adventures uh, were still very much okay, and this movie captured the essence of that experience for me just perfectly. How about you? I, I completely agree. I, this movie is, uh, I, it, it's just so honest and, uh, it just feels like it's, it captured a, this, this, uh, essence of the purity of childhood and not just of childhood, but also of that transition out of childhood. It's kind of like that delicate place in childhood where you start going from, having all of those uh just well, being a kid and then starting to kind of realize that you're growing up a little bit and you know it's that realization that comes one out of this journey of finding this body uh but two it's kind of that last hurrah for these kids as they get ready to start junior high knowing that they're potentially going to be taking di very different tracks in school and this great friendship that they have at this time in their life is uh this is kind of that last moment of it and uh it's there's this uh kind of just like this nostalgia in the film and this uh i don't want to call it a sense of loss but it's it's definitely a sense of an end to things and yeah. remembering remembering those things and looking back and appreciating what you had in, in those times and and very much a beginning to things. Yeah, I mean, yeah every, exactly. Uh, that's one of the things that I find is so wonderful about it is sort of they all, uh, all these boys end up in this um, sort of nostalgic space at, toward the end as well as they realize that this was this was the great adventure for them uh, as a group. This was the great experience of their lives together and uh, that this body that they did find uh, is it, it represented them coming to terms with their childhood and their uh, teenhood and that transition, that transformation that occurs between that space uh, in a different way. And, and I, I think so much of that experience of, of their translation of that experience uh, for me was very much straight on the shoulders of Will Wheaton, River Phoenix, Corey Feldman, Jerry O'Connell. Um, these, I mean, to have these four boys who so exquisitely portrayed the, this, these sort of caricatures of young restless boyhood uh i, I think I, I mean i just can't imagine um the the unbelievable luck that rob reiner had in pairing these boys together oh i know i can't either i mean it's brilliant casting and i mean it, it's not the uh <laughs> it's not by chance that they ended up casting these kids i mean it, it obviously took work to find all of these kids and uh get them to develop the relationship that they needed to actually have you're wrong it was luck film. it was luck and maybe a little <laughs> astrology <laughs> oh you know that could have been I, I did hear that uh that rob reiner was very much into kind of his astrological signs it worked for reagan <laughs> <laughs> and he was president <laughs> <laughs> you were saying no but i mean these kids i mean are fantastic i mean 
River Phoenix had been in a few things already. Uh, Corey Feldman had been in a few things. Um, Will Wheaton had been in, I think he had been in some uh, smaller, I I don't know if it was TV projects or or, uh, um, other films, but nothing very big and maybe some theater and stuff like that. But, um, and then Jerry O'Connell was a complete, you know, new find that they, that they found just for this film. And I mean, all of them just are perfectly cast, not just as friends, but in each of the particular parts they play. Uh, you know, Rob Reiner said that uh, Corey Feldman was the only kid that they found who had the anger needed for a kid at that age um, who could bring that honest anger out in their life because you know of things that had gone on in his life. And and that was something that really helped, I think, bring bring Teddy to life in, in that, that character. And I think it works in all their cases. I, I definitely do. They each have a, a, a sort of broken moment. And it, um, it, it just adds such a sense of depth as each one of them goes through their unique transformation. Uh, it adds such a, dep- a depth to the group and to the group's eventual showdown with, uh, you know, the positively diabolical Kiefer Sutherland. Mm. Um, I, to, to see him show up, I mean, uh, he, he is, he's the perfect, he's the archetype of the bully, right? I mean, he's just perfect uh, at being a dash sociopathic, uh, but it, it turns out not terribly authentic, yeah. uh, and really terrifying looking, just yeah. threatening. He's just threatening. He, yeah. The essence of a bully. Yeah. He is the essence of a bully. And I think that's so much of what this movie captures for me. It's around every corner. It's capturing the stereotype that I believed existed when I was young, right? In my deepest fears, there was always that bully around the corner, right? I mean, there was, if, if my, well, and I shouldn't say that because that makes it sound like I just walked around terrified all the time. Um, but, you know, when I was that age, my sense was if I was going to deal with social threat, it would look like Kiefer Sutherland and stand by me. Does that make sense? Uh-huh, yeah. I mean, I think that's so much of what this movie captures. It captures that spirit of the fear, the uncertainty, and the doubt that exists in the hearts and minds of boys of this age. And so that makes that final showdown over the body. And it's such a weird showdown because they all, they, they, they go on this search for the body all in an effort to retrieve it. Which is right. so strange to me. Like, uh, what? Uh, like, uh, I, I didn't, I didn't quite get why that was. That was the thing that needed to be done. Wouldn't it be great if we go found this, find this body, and and bring it home? Uh, and and yet, when they get there and have this showdown, they're able to stand up against this this impending threat, this doom, and they do it with the nuclear option. You know, they have the gun. It is the ultimate reward of frivolous youth to end up having the key to power and i i love that i love that turn it like addresses all the best fantasies for me well and not just that but also the really kind of the ability to step up and take that mantle right you know because i mean they had they had been playing around with it earlier in the film and it was very it was kind of jovial and you know he shoots it and it it, it goes off and you know they didn't know it was loaded and all that. But now, I mean, he's 
really threatening these guys. You know, he really has a very definitive line of going from that boy playing with a gun to that, uh, you could, I guess you could say, that man who now has the gun and is willing to use it to defend his, his territory and to defend what's right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what's so great, right? He just sort of discovers in that moment that he knows what's right. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, it just sort of, it's, it's an emergent behavior. Uh, and I think that's a really elegant, elegant turn. Well, and I think, I think a lot of that comes from the conversation that he has right before that, when he's, uh, when he's, um, talking about his brother and his uh, kind of the relationship with his father and how uh, how hard it is and chris is trying to help him and talking to him about that and 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 gordy has that breakdown right there right before uh uh ace and his gang all show up um and i think in that process of kind of working through his fear of not being loved by his father and his father hating him. And Chris is just like, he just doesn't know you and all of that. It's like that helps him turn that corner. And he, he's finally able through that moment to get past the death of his brother. Yeah. Yeah. His brother, that was a surprise to me. I'd forgotten, uh, Denny was played by, um, Oh, goodness, what's his name? John Cusack. John Cusack. I had forgotten yeah. that he was played by John Cusack. Yeah, it always surprises me, too. I always forget that. And, uh, you know, that was one of those casting choices that uh, he had been uh, in a film with uh, Rob Reiner just uh, a few years before, uh, The Sure Thing. And um, and when Rob Reiner, it was actually his very his previous film. And, and Rob was looking for that face that could just, come in and lend that presence that was kind of that unforgettable, lovable presence, even in just those two or three scenes. And I thought John was perfect for the role. He was. He was perfect. It was it was a little bit of a homecoming. Yes. Um, the, uh, the film takes place, as we said, in 1959 uh, over a Labor Day weekend. Uh, oh, the Labor Day films. <laughs> I know. We can do a whole series on those now. Uh, the, truly, and they go in the holiday series now. That's right. Um, so the 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 should we talk a little bit about the background of these boys? I mean, is that is is that worth it to you, or have we do you feel like we've done that enough? Well, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I guess if it's in context, I mean, I don't, I don't think I specifically need to, but. Well, fine. I would, you know, I just look at the, at the, how beautiful the backstory of each of these boys is laid out in the film. That's, that's the thing that sort of excites me about it is that, you know, we, we get, um, you know, Gordy's backstory that his brother is, is dead and, uh, that we see in, in just a very quick scene, which is a, a wonderful, uh, just general, uh, composition uh with gordy in the window um up high up above the camera down low on his uh you know with, and we're looking at gordy's mother uh who is hanging laundry and he is yelling at his mother saying you know mom 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 where's my where's my canteen and mom won't answer because she is mourning and mm. the voiceover we get from richard dreyfus who is at this point establishing how great a voiceover pitch man he is, um, <laughs> is, is telling us that, that this is where, uh, his, his, uh, mother and stepfather fell apart, um, as a result of, of the death of Denny. And, and it's really that scene that establishes, um, Gordon's weakness 
ultimately, which doesn't which which we don't see pay off until he's sitting on the log at the very end of the film. But you can feel that pressure, his walk through the swamp, the walk through on, on the tracks. You just feel him um, sort of seething. And uh, I found that very effective. Yeah, that's great. I thought it was his dad. I didn't think it was a stepdad. I thought it was his dad and mom. Really? Maybe yeah. that was, maybe I was, I'm not sure where I heard. I, I could have sworn I hear Dreyfus's voice, and t- you know, saying stepdad but i i may be i may have misheard that no i think it's just his dad it's his dad yeah okay and then uh and then uh teddy the other one that i think is you know we get a beautiful sense of where teddy comes from through a physical manifestation i we you know there there are a few words about how his father is is mentally unstable but those words are not nearly as powerful as his ear yeah uh, which his father held to the stove. Uh, and so he's he's got a scarred ear. Uh, I don't know. I think it's pretty powerful when the junk man is going loony, loony, loony. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, that's, I mean, there's nothing more painful than an adult uh, being so derisive about something like that to a child about their, their parent. Yeah. And that's a good point. It, it's really, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of shocking for me to see that behavior, but uh, you know, I know that it can be out there. Uh, but it's, um, it's just, you really, it puts you in that place where you really, really feel for Teddy. And, and it's, it's such an interesting relationship that it's, it establishes with him and his father because his father is, you know, clearly abusive, uh, but here, Teddy still worships him, you know, and he's just like, he stormed the beaches at Normandy. And, and, you know, he's kind of got this, this thing where it's just kind of that love hate relationship about his father. I mean, it's his old man. It's a, you know, it's, he's always going to love him, even though his dad is uh, messed up in the head and very interesting story there. I, I think so too. It's that it, it's a great sort of manifestation of that, the, the invincible father, Yeah, uh, you know, he, he can do no wrong. I think that that works. It's a very powerful yeah, uh, exposition. And Chris Chambers, uh, you know, River Phoenix's character also has a really interesting story with the, uh, you know, the stealing the milk money scene where he is talking to uh, Gordy about that um, while they're sitting up camp at camp one night. And that scene is incredibly powerful. And the emotion that comes out of River Phoenix as he is um, acting the scene, telling the story about how, you know, yes, he, he took the milk money, but he gave it back, but the teacher took then proceeded to steal the money that he was supposed to give back and bought a new skirt with it and continued to blame Chris because he is the sort of kid that everyone is going to assume did the wrong thing. Yeah, that was very strong. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just, it's this really powerful story that um, I, you know, it really, uh, that story really caught me up this time. I had forgotten about that story and it was, uh, I don't know. There's something about that honest um, emotion that River Phoenix was always so good at at putting out there that really um, just, I mean, really just tugged at my heartstrings watching that scene this time. Yeah, that was another one that nostalgia really hit home. Just watching River Phoenix um, yeah. in this film, was it was uh, pleasant memories. Right, right, of right. This, of this guy's work. Um, talk a little bit about the the script, though. You know, from your perspective, you know, as you teach this stuff, uh, when you think about I, this, this film is different 
than uh, obviously a lot of the films that we've talked about in Stephen King's series already. Um, we we don't have any of the supernatural horror. We don't even have a whole lot of. There, it, it's not even a thriller, right? Most of this film is walking and talking and exploring the world of of what it means to be a boy. And yet, uh, miraculously, even through the exposition, even through the the um, you know the the wrestling in the water and the, I mean, those, these little snippets of, of quote action. Um, I, I still find myself really compelled and, and I find the script really sort of moves me through this story, uh, very effectively. Um, you know, talk a little bit about Reynold Gideon and, and Bruce Evans and, and how the, you know, the architecture of the script really plays for you. Well, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of it, I think, comes from just this this semi-autobiographical fictional story that Stephen King wrote. Uh, it's the nature of the story is kind of this this journey story about these uh, these kids going on this journey, and you know, stories about boys going on a journey are just a great way to kind of show these rites of passage that they have to go through. And because of that, in any journey film, it always ends up. Um, being kind of, you know, uh, A leads to B, it's a very linear sort of film because it's a journey. You know, it's like you're following the trail with them. And I think just the way that they uh, found the strength in the story, well, I think there's a few key things. They, uh, well, the the big one is, I think, finding the right character to focus on. Uh, and, and I don't know if it was uh, uh, the two writers... Uh, Raynal Gideon or, and Bruce Evans, or when Rob Reiner came in and actually did some uh, some rewrites on it himself. But they, in the novel or the novella, um, Chris Chambers is really the uh, the the protagonist, the the main character of the story, and it's kind of seen through through Gordy's eyes. He's kind of the onlooker just kind of watching the story unfold. Like at the end, Chris is the one who holds the gun up uh, at Ace and all that. It was very smart on on all of the parts of the people who were involved in the writing to to just kind of tap into this idea that this story is about Gordy and it's kind of the, this growth for Gordy um, and they kind of changed some of those elements throughout the original novella and brought them around to Gordy to make it a story about him and I think that was a, a big strength that those uh, uh, both uh, Gideon and Evans along with Reiner all tapped into to. Uh, make this journey that much more uh, important for us, the viewer, especially as I said earlier, you know, this is a story where these boys are at this point in life where they're about to go into junior high and split up really, Uh, you know, Teddy and Vern both as they, as uh, I think Chris says, are are likely going to go off to taking all the shop classes and all that. Chris is likely to go that route as well. And Gordy is the one who's going to kind of break free. He's the smart one. He's the one who's going to end up doing something with his life, uh, becoming a writer. Um, And by making him the protagonist of the story, it gives this better sense of growth and and kind of the, that nostalgia in the story. And by creating this journey film, they uh, this story, they were able to uh, use all the different elements throughout to continue growing all the different characters. And you've got the uh, you know the junkyard scene that I already talked about, and and just even the interactions that they have along the way, like when Gordy has to go into the store to buy their food. 
and ends up kind of having that little conversation with with uh, the man behind the counter who is talking to him about his brother. And, and so we get more of that story about his brother and how people relate to him through his brother and they don't see him as him as who he is. They just see him as, oh, you're you're Denny's brother. And and then you've got the great the 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 great race across the train bridge. You've got the leeches. You've got uh, you've got the actual uh, the campfire scene. The scene with the deer is another beautiful one that's just very touching. And uh, there's constant growth and evolution of these characters as they move through this uh, point in their lives where they are. Uh, changing and 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 uh, leaving things behind and opening new doors, and I think it, it's a it's a powerful script because of that. I I think so too. I think that's you know it, it gets back to that sense of it, it's a funny comparison, but I keep I I kept thinking of the Princess Bride uh, as I was watching this movie. You know, it just mm. it, just one sequence after another that drives us toward an inevitable end of the adventure, and uh, and and to see what they learn and uh, about themselves and about each other. And and you look at things like you know to specifically to the script, the use of language. I mean, it's a foul mouthed film, uh, yeah. but in so many ways, that was one of the most legitimate pieces of the film for me, right? I mean, they hit this age where when there are no adults around, they're exploring every way that it means to grow up. And and they do it by smoking cigarettes, and they do it by swearing constantly to one another. Uh, and they do it by taking turns, really, bullying one another. Every one of them takes a turn being the bully and being bullied uh, as they go through this process of testing the emotional boundaries of their friendships and and what they can get away with saying to one another. Uh, And then by transition, supporting one another in times of difficulty and what it means to be a support. And I think that is a a beautiful... uh, This film is a beautiful example of those elements of our youth. Uh, It was very powerful. These guys, um, you know, you talk about... uh, Reynold Gideon and and um, uh, Bruce, they, Bruce Evans. Bruce Evans. They've done uh, eight films, all of them together. Right. Um, a Man, A Woman, and a Bank. Starman, Stand By Me, Made in Heaven. Cuffs, Cutthroat Island. I know that's high on your list. Jungle <laughs> to Jungle and Mr. Brooks. Uh, more recently, they took quite a hiatus between 97 and 2007 um, for Mr. Brooks. And nothing, uh, uh, nothing since in terms of, of screenplay. Or right. script work. Um, I I don't know uh, what it is about uh, their writing, but in this case, Stand By Me, to me, really stands out. Well, I think a lot of that boils down to Stephen King's story. Yeah. I mean, I you know, my sense is, I don't know how they were brought into this particular project, but my sense is maybe because they had uh, worked on Starman, mm-hmm. which which there's there is that kind of sense of that... Uh, learning about a new world sort of yeah. uh, in that story. And I sure. can see them, I can see people tapping into that in Starman feeling like they could translate the Stephen King story pretty mm-hmm. well. Um, do you, do you remember this, the, the original King story? Well, I mean, you made reference to it a couple of times. I, I don't remember it very well. The movie has supplanted the book for me or the novella. Yeah. I, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I really enjoyed, uh, all the stories in, in different seasons. Um, and this one, it just, it really feels, um, I mean, my recollection of it is it felt 
very much like what I see in the movie. And I, I don't know if it's because it's been too much time between the two, but they feel very much, uh, very much, uh, the same to me. Hmm. The one thing, um, I want to read the very first, uh, paragraph of the book though, uh, because there's something about it that I think hits on, uh, part of the essence of telling a story like this, um, and, and, and creating that idea of the nostalgia and how precious these things are. And I think it actually plays out well in the film in that moment where Gordy is sitting on the tracks and the deer comes by and he talks about how he was going to tell the guys, but then he decided to not. And, you know, this was the first time that he'd ever kind of told anybody about it. Um, so this is this is the first paragraph of the book. The most important things are the hardest things to say. They are the things you get ashamed of because words diminish them. Words shrink things that seemed limitless when they were in your head to no more than living size when they're brought out. But it's more than that, isn't it? The most important things lie too close to wherever your secret heart is buried, like landmarks to a treasure your enemies would love to steal away. And you may make revelations that cost you dearly, only to have people look at you in a funny way, not understanding what you've said at all or why you thought it was so important that you almost cried while you were saying it. That's the worst, I think, when the secret stays locked within, not for want of a teller, but for want of an understanding ear. Mm. And that's I, you beautiful. Know, I, what's yeah? What's it, the context of that? That's it's just it's the setup for this story. Yeah, you know that's that's the very first paragraph. And then well, the I next mean for you, like why does that? Oh, why yeah. does that hit you so hard? It's because it just that is a reflection of reflecting on those moments in your childhood and how important all of those moments were to you and why you did the things you did and and what they mean to you now, what they meant to you then, the people that you hung out with, uh, just all just everything that you have in your head of all of those memories and how it's really kind of hard. It's these things are really delicate and it's like, how do you get across to somebody else who didn't experience any of that, the importance that it has to you. And it's, it's, uh, uh, you know, I think that's, that's one of the reasons why Gordy may not say anything to his friends about seeing that deer, because it's just one of those precious moments that for him, there was more meaning to it than, uh, than could ever be there for any of them. And once he kind of tells them about it and they go, Oh, that's cool or whatever. And they, or they joke about it or will bring up stories about how their dad shot a deer and you know, all that, whatever they went hunting. Then all of a sudden the whole thing becomes diminished and all that meaning that he has in that moment is gone. And, and to me, it's like the, it's telling this story. It's like Stephen King deliberately starts this story with this because I, I, I think because there's some autobiographical elements of his life in this story and he, you know, he's putting it out there. And I think that, um, he's doing it in a way where he wants to, um, not diminish it. And as a storyteller, I think he's finding ways to create a story about it that kind of gives it more and, and maybe protects some of the elements that are, that are his own that he hasn't let out, you know, but I, I the biggest thing for me is just how those elements, um, those parts of your memory, um, uh, mean so much to you, even if you can't ever express that to somebody else. And I mean, that's what the film I think is largely about those memories. Yeah. Yeah. I, I absolutely agree. And I like the way you put that. I mean, it's this idea of, of discerning. And I think through these boys discovering how to discern what is too precious to share. Yeah. And that ends up being a really beautiful, um, 
movement. Uh, let's talk about Rob Reiner. Yeah, he's a he's a director who had has had a career that um, sometimes works. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Come on, uh, I I would say that uh, Rob Reiner's movies were great in the eighties and into when, the nineties. When did they go south the for you? I think his films went south for me. Uh, gosh, uh, let's see. I haven't seen the story of us. Is that what it was? Uh, well, yeah, I didn't even bother with that one. I, I think it's uh, I would say the American president is the last one that he made that I thought was good. The American president was the last one he made that was good. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I haven't, I haven't seen all of them since, you know, but, uh, yeah. but in the beginning, you know, spinal tap, I mean, the sure thing, I, I, I don't know if I'd put that on the list. Because but, you don't, you didn't, you weren't a fan of Ghosts of Mississippi? No, I didn't like that one at all. I felt, I found it, I don't know, just didn't, didn't work well for me. I, I think I'm more, I, I think I'm more attracted to that film just because I, I, because of my trip to Mississippi and we, we did the whole Medgar Evers thing and, and, uh. It's a pretty powerful story, and I, I think that's one of the reasons I may give that movie more of a pass than you. To me, and I think the story is very powerful. It just felt very, uh, it felt like a Hollywoodized version of it. You know? Oh, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. no doubt. But, you okay. know, I mean, Spinal Tap, Stand By Me, Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Misery, uh, A Few Good Men, and The American President. Then Those we get into some that. films. I think maybe you're right. We get into some films. You know, rumor has it, the bucket list flipped. The magic of Belle Isle, like, and and so it goes. Movies, I just, I, I don't connect with. Yeah, uh, and and so it goes. What happened there? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> and so it goes. <laughs> yeah, tough one. Anyway, I see your point, but you know, there's one of the there, there's a piece about um, his work leading up to that. I would say then. Uh, where you look at, and, and maybe this is why I have such a connection between The Princess Bride and Stand By Me. You know, they're made right after, you know, one another. Um, it, it's this whole idea of um, of taking, uh, of responsibility, you know. I mean, that's that's what all of these early films r- are really about, this idea of misery, a few good men, Stand By Me, um, you know, Princess Bride. They're all about these characters who are discovering, you know, how and where to take responsibility and role model figures that take responsibility. And, and, um, I, I love this, uh, uh, I love this sense of it that we see in stand by me largely in its purest form, uh, because of their youth and, and their experiences through the story. I, I think it ends up being a, a powerful sort of thread through his, uh, through Reiner's early, um, you know, not just straight comedic, um, films. In fact, there is a, there's the, you know, largely one of my favorite, um, uh, scenes in a movie about presidents is in the American president when Michael J. Fox calls the president to take responsibility and to take action. And, uh, it, you know, it, the American people are looking for somebody to, to, you know, tell them what to do and they will listen to whoever steps up to the mic. And, uh, and I just, I, I love that sequence. Uh, it, it really sings to me, uh, as it punctuates kind of Rob Reiner's this theme that, that is carried over through his, through his films. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Fair enough. 
You didn't like that point. You don't like that at all. You're just going <laughs> to. No, I do. What do you want to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, what else is on your list? Uh, just some of the other people in the film. Uh, you know, Casey, however you say his last name, Shamasco. I'm never good with his last name. Finally. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I, was, I was hoping you'd say it. I didn't want to have. I would screw it up. Are you kidding? <laughs> I think it's uh, Shamashko Sim, or something. Like Shamashko? Shamasco? Shamasco? Casey Shamasco. Casey Shamasco. Plays Bill Tessio. He's great in it. Uh, <laughs> you know. Bradley Gregg has, you know, eyeball chambers. I mean, he's, he's got a great face. Like, you know, Kiefer Sutherland's gang, Gary Riley, uh, they all have, have a great, uh, a great look for that kind of the bully gang that they are. And then Marshall Bell and Francis Lee McCain as, uh, Gordy's parents, I think do a great job. Yeah. And, uh, and Bruce Kirby as Mr. Uh, Quidicholo as the, uh, the, uh, the guy who owns the little convenience store. I think he's, he's, uh, he looks good, and you know he's uh, um, Bruno Kirby's dad, who ends up being in When Harry Met Sally. Few, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's funny. Yeah, that's funny. You see him. Uh, you know, I hadn't made that connection until I saw his name looking at the show. And that boy, they he is Bruno Kirby's dad. Yes, there is no <laughs> doubt. He is Bruno Kirby's dad. Absolutely. <laughs> Too funny. Absolutely. Too funny. Anybody else jumps out for you? Uh, you know, and then just. Uh, you know, looking at the at the rest of the group, I mean, I think Thomas Del Ruth, the cinematographer, uh, captures a uh, a great look. I don't think it's I don't think it's flashy or showy, uh, but there is something about the uh, uh, I don't know if I'd call it the simplicity, but he he just captures the uh, just kind of that essence of you know boyhood summer. I think you know. There's a, especially yeah. kind of those those long lens shots of the boys kind of walking through a field or on the tracks. There's a, almost a, a lyrical quality to it. You know, it just uh, I, I I like it quite a bit. I I do too. And I you know I think one of the things that it it captures quite well is this you know is that sense the same thing i think we talked about um uh, with uh, anthony richmond who uh, did the sandlot um you know cinematographer the sandlot it's that it's that real gift of capturing the time uh, you know the yeah. period in a way that appears authentic to us not living in it anymore right right you know i think you're right it's it's simple it's it's pure uh and i think they do i think he does a great job um you know moving moving the moving us around by way of the camera yeah absolutely those long lens i found you know i was taking i was just taking screenshots and i i uh, i found myself really fixated on some of those long lens shots the trains the train shots are just beautiful um in particular, I think it's just there's just that bridge, the train bridge is just a, a wonderful sequence. It's entrancing. Yeah, it really is that one. And, I, you know, I couldn't get over uh, even just like the, the boys around the campfire scene. Just I mean, the 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 great look of the their faces in the firelight also just captures that essence. No, oh, it really does. It really does. Uh, the, you get some of those um, you can these wonderful <laughs> <laughs> this wonderful depth of field when uh, uh, Jerry O'Connell comes up out of the water. 
you know, you have mm-hmm. him, it's, it's the perfect sort of the Island shot, you know, where he's, he's in the water and he's looking around right before they discover they're covered in leeches. And it's, it is, uh, it's, it's a mystical, it's a mystical moment. And it's, it is so, such a wonderful contrast, this mysticism around his chubby little face. It's just so <laughs> perfect. Ah, <laughs> uh, good old Jerry O'Connell, man. Woo. Oh. Boy, did he, uh, did he shake it all off? He sure did. <laughs> Yes, indeed. What is he doing these days? Is he uh, back in TV? You know, well, he did. Um, uh, he did a show that I watched uh, a lot, uh, which was the um, uh, sliders? sliders. I really liked yeah. Sliders, you know. And um, but uh, he's he does now he's doing Jake and the Neverland Pirates. Uh, Jake and the Neverland Pirates. Does he doing a lot of voice stuff? Um, uh, and of course, you know, we talked about Space Station seventy six. Um, yeah, right, right. You know, so. Um, anyway, uh, he's not doing enough. I like Jerry O'Connell. He's an interesting, uh, interesting actor and, and I, yes. I wish he was doing more. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, that's, uh, what I'm looking at, uh, looking at the list. Oh, you know, I guess I, 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 one of the things, speaking of cinematography, I think they did really, really well. I made some notes about the way the town looks in the beginning of the film and the way the town looks when they cross the bridge back into it. Hmm. And I don't know if it's, if it's just the way, um, you okay? Yeah. She blows. <laughs> I was opening my bottle. Sorry. Did you blow an O-ring just now? <laughs> uh, we've got a pressure leak on valve number five. Uh, we, <laughs> he says at the end as they're walking back into town, and, it, you know, when, when they leave town, the camera is high, and uh, it's, it's high and long, so you get this wonderful long perspective of the railroad tracks as they're walking down it, and this, this sort of floral, or this sort of the, the foliage is kind of creeping up over, and when they're coming back into town, the camera is low and behind them, and it, it makes them look really large, you know, in this, in the expanse of the buildings, right? They look larger than the buildings just because they're so much closer to the camera. And it's, it's at, at that shot, as you, you hear the voiceover saying, you know, sometimes or somehow the town seemed different, smaller. Uh, and then he, they go through the litany of, of, what happens next to each other, you know, Dreyfus is mm-hmm. talking about, it. he says, you know, they, they're just become two more faces in the halls. It happens sometimes. And that sequence of saying goodbye is one that I, I think is a perfect match between the script and the visuals in a sense of, of giving us a sense of scope, you yeah. know, of, of scope of where of space. And, um, it's a great, contrast over the course of the you know hour and a half or whatever the film is uh that you get to you get to see them shrink the town as a result of this uh experience together and they do it with the camera it's just a beautiful uh, example of that i think yeah and smart filmmaking and and uh but simple filmmaking yeah very simple i think that's the that's the word right it's it's just very simple it's a simple movement that changes the dynamic of the scene yeah really well done Absolutely. Uh, shall we uh, talk numbers? I've got two last things. Of course you do. Of course I do. We need One. some sort of a bell. <laughs> Is that the all-finished bell? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. What are your two last things? 
this film, uh, well, as as we've talked about with Stephen King before, uh, takes place in Castle Rock, although it's Oregon yes. in this story, not Maine. Um, oh, I have another uh, footnote. Footnote. Go ahead. Okay. Well, well, Castle Rock. Uh, this is the where Rob Reiner, after this, created his company, Castle Rock Films, and uh, ended up uh, using that as his uh, as his company for the uh, remainder of his career. The other note yes. is. Uh, in as with many of Stephen King's stories, there are all of those little connections in the books. And Ace Merrill, Keeper Sutherland's character, he ends up reappearing in Needful Things, uh, which I haven't read Needful Things, or have, nor have I seen the film. Um, although I guess he's not in the film, but he is in the book. Um, there's also the dog Chopper. They talk about the, the comparison of him with Cujo. And uh, the characters in the book are familiar with Shawshank Prison, where, you know... Uh, from Shawshank Redemption, of course. And uh, Teddy, uh, uh, Corey Feldman's character, is actually in Stephen King's first book, Carrie. Uh, when Carrie destroys the gas station, uh, Teddy uh, had actually worked at that gas station at one point in time. So it's an interesting kind of uh, way that Stephen King is always finding uh, opportunities to blend his uh, world in all of his different stories together. Now it's what's funny about that tell them, or the Castle Rock it's it's in Maine it's a fake city. Right. Right. In Oregon it's not. Well, I should say it may be in Stephen King's head, but it's not it is a real place. It's a it's an unincorporated, you know, kind of community you drive through it on your way to the coast uh from oh. my house. It's uh, Castle Rock, Oregon. It's in Tillamook County, right by the Tillamook Cheese Factory. Well, isn't Castle Rock the name of that big rock that's out there? That's Haystack. Well, there is a Castle oh, Rock, but the the one the Goonies Rock is Haystack Rock. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So, uh anyway, so I find that interesting that this is the this is the one that, you know, you can make a plausible case that it it exists. Like this is the one that he's he may likely have been thinking of. Right. Um so uh I I did have uh, I did have a one more thing and it's not even anecdotal. I just want your opinion on it. Okay. Uh I love uh, I I really like the pie eating contest and we didn't talk about that at all. <laughs> right. It's like right. you're you're going along at this film and halfway through the film they t- he he's the boys are on their they're telling campfire stories and here we are in a Stephen King book, right? And the campfire story is not even a horror story. It's a, it's a hysterical story of vomit vengeance. What did you think of it? It sort of it, changes the tone. It, it does. It, it has a very almost Mark Twain vibe to it. Is, is oh, what, that's perfect. Oh, yes. Me. And uh, I don't know. It just, I, I like it. I, I did read uh, some reviews and one of them is just like, well, if, if these are the stories that uh, Gordy Lachance is going to be telling as a storyteller, uh, maybe he'd be better off taking a shop class. I don't know if I really That's agree with mean. that. That's mean. The kid's I, I like 11 years old or 12 I, I, or something. Exactly. You know? I think it's very, very <laughs> malicious. But um, I, I love the tone change. And I, I just love what it says about these characters and the world that they're in and just kind of that mentality of being a 12-year-old boy. I also love what it says about Teddy when it comes to time, time for Gordy to finish the story and Teddy is feeling like there needs to be more. There's a, well, how, yeah. what happens next? <laughs> that was it. <laughs> I know. I love it. That the whole sequence is really perfect. And it just, it, it, um, 
it, it just changes the tone of the film just long enough to remember that there's something to laugh about. And it, and it's really grotesquely fake. You know, it really, it, it just changes the visual style of the film. It changes everything yeah, for just a few minutes. It so completely is just not, not real at all, which it does make it very enjoyable. Uh, we didn't talk either about the music, um, yeah, Jack Nietzsche, uh, you know, he's not done a lot of scores that stand out as like great scores that I love, but um, but he's got some really interesting stuff. And I think that the thing for me that uh, works the best in this particular score is the that sense of nostalgia that he uh, imbues in it. And uh, also that he really kind of ties the uh, the actual "Stand by Me" song by Benny King into the score, and and Beautifully. I yeah, it's it's very touching to hear that in here, and so uh, that may be uh, you know one of my favorite uh, parts of the score is just that it, that moment. But I mean, he's been around for for you know since the the uh, '60s, really. I mean, he did "One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest" and and. Uh, um, I don't know, an officer and a gentleman and the razor's edge, jewel of the Nile, nine and a half weeks, uh, the seventh sign. So he's definitely somebody who's been around. Um, he worked in, uh, some of, uh, um, uh, uh, Sean Penn's early films. So, I mean, he's an interesting composer. He's not a composer that, it, like I said, doesn't stand out for me, but I do like what he did here. Yeah, me too. I, you know, and just, just kind of putting a, um, final point uh, that of all the films that we've talked about, how sort of aggressively anti-adaptation Stephen King has been in the past, uh, this is the one that he said was the first successful translation, the first successful adaptation of any of his works. Uh, was Stand by Me from the Body. Yeah, yeah. So, and it really moved him. I mean, I, uh, you know, Rob Reiner talked about how Stephen King watched this, and and just it really hit him because it, he saw a lot of his childhood in the film. Yeah, so. it's kind of low hanging fruit in that regard. It is. I can, if I'd written this, this, and then you're watching it, yeah, I, I, I'd tear up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Now, you can know, we I, talk about money? I, I forgot. I have one <sighs> more. <laughs> interesting little tidbit i know so ray brower the dead kid that they go to find oh right yeah is played by uh, kent w luttrell who was in uh this was his uh one of his only films he did this and then in 1997 he was uh, in a tv series in profiler <laughs> the rest of his career he's a stunt man he has been doing stunts in so many movies out in in uh, Hollywood, and uh, since since the eighties, he was a you know stunt double in MacGyver, in uh, in the pilot, and so uh, he's just somebody who's been just in this all the way through uh, you know Flight of the Intruder, the People Under the Stairs, Army of Darkness, um, he did uh, Major Pain. You know, not some not so good movies all the way, <laughs> but like Dante's Peak. I mean, you think about him in terms of stunts. It's like, sure, okay. Um, he did stunts for Alien, uh, Alien Resurrection. So, wow, somebody who uh, yeah, that's pretty funny. Yeah, I think it's interesting how people end up uh, playing these sorts of uh, uh, roles. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and end up in just they have different careers. You know, it's like. Uh, uh, it's like a short round from Temple of Doom, who also ended up doing, going into the stunt world. Well, he did. He played a great body. Yes, he did. 
does a good job as dead kid Ray Brower. Yeah. Now can and, we talk about money? Ding. <laughs> How was that? It was, a pretty that was perfect. Bell. No, it was, I, you know, it, it gave us somewhere to start. Yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, you know, Stand By Me did did well for itself. Of all the Stephen King films that we've talked about, it has done the best, actually. Um, it, uh, it ended up costing uh, about $8 million to make. Adjusted for today's dollars would be about $17 million. So still, you know, relatively low budget film. It ended up making domestically just over $52 million. Uh, so definitely a hefty chunk of change. I couldn't find anything internationally, but uh, with that $52 million means that it made an adjusted profit uh, per finished minute of just over a million dollars. Wow. Nice round so, number. Yeah. It, uh, it did pretty well for itself. Well done. Well done. I think we should rank it. Let's do it. All right, head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, and you can see all the films that we have ranked over the years that we've been doing this thing and see if our stack rankings line up with your stack rankings, and then they can be stack ranking besties. <laughs> I think that's an official flick chart term. <laughs> hey, you know, words don't become words until you commit. That's right. Said Oxford. <laughs> English dictionary. John Oxford. You were saying? <laughs> All right. You ready? <laughs> yes. All right. Stand by me or carry. Stand by me. Great way to kick off. All right. Yes. Stand by me. All right. Stand by me or for a few dollars more. Oh, wow. Uh, I'm doing stand, stand by, by me. me. Yeah. Stand by me or the shining. Stand by me. I'll do stand by me. Yeah. Stand by me or time bandits. Stand by me. Interesting stories about childhood. Yeah. Yeah, I think I would do stand by me. Stand by me or alien. Ooh, get I, up would, I would do alien. I would too. Stand by me or Raiders of the Lost Ark. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Absolutely. Stand by me or all the president's men. All the president's men. All righty. Stand by me or Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. This is easy for me. Now no, that we're up there, there, it's that's easy. Well, there you go. It it puts it at number ten. Wow! With a yeah. bullet to the top ten. That's, that's fantastic. Right. That's right. Ten well, out of one hundred and fifty-four. Little shake up in the upper ranks there. It's always good. What did it kick out of the top ten? Time Bandits. Oh, okay. There, that would Boot be it. The time Bandits out. Yeah. Boom. Sorry, I think guys. I'm okay with that. I mean, I love Time Bandits, yeah. but yeah, it's number 11. And, yeah. you know, Spinal Tap goes to 11. <laughs> there you go. Uh, and here's to our uh, Rob Reiner series coming soon. That's right. Yeah. The good, it'll be the good movies of Rob Reiner. <laughs> That's right. Uh, we've done a few already, so where, at least we're our way done. Where do we go from here? We are going to... Uh, well, we're getting close. We've only got a couple films left in this uh, lengthy Stephen King series. Uh, we're going to be doing, actually, the other Rob Reiner-Stephen King collaboration, and it is none other than Misery. <sighs> this, the, uh, I, this is a tough one. Really? To get through for me. Yeah. Really? Yeah, it is, and it's only for that one. 
<laughs> one scene. Oh, it's probably the other yeah, hobbling is it, I, it stands out to me. I, and I have been thinking about it since we started the series, knowing <laughs> eventually we'd get there that of all of the horrible things we've seen happen from the flaming demon cars to the thing under the stairs. It's, it's when, uh, it's when he gets hobbled, uh, that I, it stands out as some of the most horrifying Stephen King stuff. What's great, in the about, woods. what's great about watching Stephen King evolve through, at least through the, the cinema versions of his stories, is you get a sense of him growing up as a writer and yeah. telling those different kinds of stories. Because, I mean, in the beginning, it was a lot more about monsters and possessed cars and and girls who can throw fire and all that sort of stuff. And now as he kind of gets gets to this point, you start getting some of these more adult sort of stories where this ho- the horror of this story is this writer who is trapped by a fan yeah. and he has no way out. And it's just completely yeah. based it. Down. I wonder where that came from. <laughs> um, it, yeah, I, I think it really is. And you know, it's funny when I think about the the um, his writing... Uh, stand by me the the uh, you know the body and again i don't really remember it so much but the movie stands out in, in the same sort of parallel that his book on writing does to me uh, which i found was and this is obviously was a, a non-fiction uh, book talking about his work as a writer and his process as a writer and what the accident you know when he was hit by a car was did to him as a writer and his struggle and it was some of the best of his writing period for me yeah. um, and it, it's it's one it's a book that I have it's it's sort of a well that I have returned to time and again because I find it uh, such a compelling narrative um, and and that that's sort of what I'm feeling with these later films. Uh, that you're right. It's it's like he is transitioning into something something different, something more approachable for guys like us, I guess yeah. today. So anyhow, I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait to talk about it. Yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> I know. There you go. I'm your number one fan. <laughs> <laughs> your number one fan. Uh, All yes. right. Well, I look forward to it. Thank you, sir. I think with that, I am going to go to bed. All right. I'm going to go eat some pie. Do you want me to go? Uh, Are you ready? I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go. Are you ready for this one? I'm. I'm. Yeah. This is this is a two star. Okay. It is one of the most boring film I've seen by Stephen King. There is nothing horrible inside. I think that most of the watchers, which find this film great, are very young. I love Stephen's psycho thrillers, but this film hasn't got something, which makes me anxious. It's more of an adventure film for children. To stu- to sum up, Stephen King top, stand by me flop. <laughs> oh, Outstanding. Yes, indeed. That yes, indeed. is a new tag for this film. <laughs>
Put the mine, sticker right on the box. Mine is a one-star from Adele, and it, it sort of plays off of yours. My husband needed this for his writing class. That is the only reason it was purchased. I would never, ever allow any children to watch this movie or even listen to it. Hollywood and the child actors seem to ruin these young actors with filth like this. This will never be watched by any children, teenagers, or even adults in my home. It is just that horrible. I was shocked, shocked to hear their mouths and see the characters in action. It is an insult to those who have and hold morals. Shocked. Do you think she put soap in her own mouth when she wrote that? Uh, And ears, apparently. (laughs) Because, and all of the ears and mouths of children, teenagers, and adults in her home. I am sorry that she was offended by this film. I found it to be, and maybe this would be equally shocking, uh, a wildly appropriate uh, a um, rendition of my childhood. <laughs> we play, we do, oh, man, swore yeah. like sailors. Filthy. I did, I- yeah, I, I was not in the in the swearing camp as a child, but certainly in the adventures, and yeah. so you know, the yeah. risk taking, and that's yeah. You missed out. No wonder you swear like a sailor today. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I have tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>